Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 22, Psalm 22. And if you need a Bible, the guys have some. They're going to make their way toward the back, so get their attention. They'll get one of those Bibles to you. And it's our gift. Keep that. Bring it back with you each Lord's Day. Now, today's message will be somewhat unusual because the psalm we're going to consider is the most often quoted in the New Testament, about a thousand years after the psalm was written. And the psalm contains elements that are about the life of one who wrote it, David, in his day, but also elements of another, in another section that points forward a thousand years to the time of Jesus. So it offers an opportunity to address at least a little bit something that has become all the the rage in evangelical circles. And I know it's the case for some of you because you you have told me. So I want to take uh, some time before we get into the outline that you have. And if we don't have time to cover the outline today, we'll continue this message next week. And as I address this topic, or as, as any topic, I I'm compelled to say, from a pastoral perspective, please understand that I do this and address whatever issues I think need to be addressed because I've heard them from you and because I want to say some things that I hope are helpful and and never, ever uh, hurtful unnecessarily. And so I want to spend some time addressing some of the issues related to interpreting portions of the Old Testament that are used in the New because it's an important topic and it has relevance for this psalm. I don't have time to engage the vast literature on this subject in our short time, but I am familiar with most of it. But I find it to be an unfortunate development for reasons that I'll explain briefly. And I say that because I think it's completely, a completely unnecessary distraction that keeps people seeking for something that I believe to be already in our possession. And I hope you'll understand what I mean by that as we, as we go. So let's pray now and ask God, to help us in our time together. Father, we thank you for the blessing of the Lord's day. We are here on the first day of the week because you rose on that day. And so we believe that you hear us in our praise. We believe you delight in the praise of your people. We believe that you hear us now as we ask you to help us in these sacred moments, as we look at your word and we desire to understand your word and to place it in the context in which you have given it. and Every true believer here desires to do that, and so I thank you for that. And I ask you to help us then in our understanding and so that we will be removed from this place, better equipped to serve you than we came. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as I am thinking during the week about the upcoming passage on which I'm going to be preaching, I sometimes talk about it with my wife, Kim. I mentioned to her Psalm 22 for this week and the fact that David, who wrote it, says in the very first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, she, like many of you, recognized those words as spoken later by Jesus on the cross. And I asked her, do you think that Psalm 22 is talking about King David? or Jesus? And she immediately answered that Jesus knew Scripture better than anyone, and when He was on the cross, these words of suffering came to His mind, and He quoted them. 
They're about King David, but those words applied perfectly to Jesus' suffering. They came to his Scripture-saturated mind, and he instinctively quoted them. So be careful when you ask him a question. (laughs) She's usually sitting up here uh, with me. Today she's in the back as we were coming in. She said something about why she was going to be in the back. I didn't actually uh, catch all of that. I think it was something to the effect, I don't like sitting with you or something. (laughs) But anyway, she's here. She's in the back. But she's very unassuming, but as sharp as anyone, and she's quite right. She didn't use this term, but she was referring, uh, when she was referring to Jesus being so familiar with Scripture and just quoting it in an appropriate situation, it's actually something called lexical priming or corpus linguistics. It's the idea that language users simply begin to borrow words, phrases, even whole sentences, sometimes without any necessary reference to context from the literature in which they're immersed. One theologian says English speakers do this all the time, for instance, with the literature of Shakespeare. When we use Shakespeare, and we do that frequently unconsciously, we're not implying that Shakespeare has made prophecies or embedded secondary meanings in his writings that are being fulfilled in our day. We're not even proposing analogies or implications of his writings for today. We've simply synthesized his words into everyday life. I believe that's something like what Jesus was doing on the cross from Psalm 22. Now, I bring that up as we look at Psalm 22 because there is what I believe to be an unfortunate tendency in our day when we see something in the New Testament that refers to something hundreds of years before in the Old, we think it says more than it does. Sometimes the first part of your Bible does point beyond the immediate context to something future, of course. Most of us know that. We call that predictive prophecy. Not all that the prophets said was predictive of something in the future, but sometimes it was. And on some of those occasions, the New Testament will use the word fulfill, as in this was to fulfill the words of the the prophet. And so, for example, in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 22, surrounding the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus, it says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressor, transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me, Jesus said. Now, it is written. Where was it written? Well, it was written about 700 years earlier in the famous Isaiah chapter 53, which points forward to the suffering servant who will come, and that chapter says will die and actually speaks of a a resurrection as well. And so Isaiah 53 says he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. It's something that pointed to the future and was directly fulfilled in the suffering and death of Jesus. But most times when the word fulfill is used in the New Testament, it is not, you may be surprised to learn, it is not a direct one-to-one correspondence with a, a prediction. The range of meaning for the Greek word that's translated fulfill in your New Testament pleru is much wider than that. Just as the range of meaning for our words has more than one possibility depending on the context in which it is used, correct? That's why if you look up the usage of a word in contemporary English and you go to a contemporary dictionary then, 
Most often that entry will have one, two, or five possibilities depending on. That's what we mean by the semantic range. That's what we mean by the broad definition of the word, but it all depends on the context. And the word fulfilled most often is not used in a one-to-one predictive way. For example, Matthew chapter 2, the opening of your New Testament, just two chapters in, says this, Joseph took the child, Jesus, and his mother Mary during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled. What the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you were to look at the prophet who said that, you would find that it's the prophet Hosea in the first part of your Bible. He wrote hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, and yet if you look at the context in Hosea, it's about the nation Israel being brought out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Most of us know that that story. Moses leading the Exodus, all recorded in the book by that name, the second book of your, your Bible. God leading them out of Egypt by His mighty hand. And it's not about Jesus and His family moving there and coming back when He was a child. And so, fulfill is being used differently there. In fact, of the 90 uses of pleru, translated fulfill, or some form of it, merely 8 to 10 of them concern a direct literal fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy or prediction. That's only 11% of all of the playru uses. And context, as always, will determine the meaning of each use of that term or any other. Often the use of fulfill is designed to link events in Israel's history with events in Jesus' life to connect Israel with Jesus. Now, notice I use my words carefully, to connect Israel with Jesus, not replace Israel with Jesus, but connect. Connect them so that He can be seen as Israel's Messiah and the Messiah for the rest of the world as well. And so, it's just an example, friends, of how we need to be very careful. And I urge you, I urge you, dear friends, be very, very careful. In fact, I say be afraid, very afraid. Be fearful before God in a a reverent fear of God, of adding, adding meaning to what God has said in its original context. And I found that people most often make that mistake when they deal with the New Testament use of the Old Testament. They see something like fulfill, And they scramble back to the Old Testament to find out that one-to-one correspondence. And since it's not there, then they come up with a way to explain it that says that the Old Testament author must have meant more than what he said. And therefore, we need a method to get to that additional meaning. And it's the search for that elusive method that explains the plethora of books and theories, and I believe confusion that's forced upon the sincere child of God who just wants to understand the Bible. And so there's the need then, we think, to survey all of the options, which means read all of the books, and then having read all of the books, then choose your method. 
in sort of a, you know, then a tribal kind of a way. I've got my method, you've got your method. And I just do not believe that is what God intended for His Word. I don't believe God intended for you to choose a method and me to choose a method that's going to lead us then, of necessity, to different conclusions. I'm a simpleton. Really. And I think God gave us the rules before He gave us the book to which we apply the rules. Otherwise, you would have never been able to understand it. Let me say that again. I believe God gave us the rules of interpretation before He gave us the book that we're to interpret. Otherwise, you would have never been able to understand it when it came. You already had the rules. You already had the principles. Otherwise, Adam would not have been able to understand God when he spoke of the rules, when God spoke, if those rules of interpretation were not built into Adam. Have you ever considered that? God speaks to Adam, and Adam understands automatically. How so? What seminar did he take? What book did he read? What method did he adopt? Otherwise, your child would not be able to understand you when you speak to them. But in fact, unless there's a disability that prevents it, they somehow automatically do understand. <laughs> and because they automatically do understand, they're able to do exactly the opposite. Because both are natural. Language skills and sin are both natural. You have them. You have language skills by virtue of being a human being made in the image of God. You have a sin nature because we are all fallen in our father Adam. That's why I believe, and I say respectfully, I hope I, and I want to communicate that respect. This is just a concern and one that I think I have to address. If I'm going to do the book of Psalms, and the book of Psalms is going to talk about Jesus, and as we will see in this particular Psalm, you have some things from the life of David, and you have some things predicted, I believe, from the life of Jesus in the future. But I say respectfully then, that is why I believe it's impossible for the Bible to be hermeneutically unique. When I say hermeneutically unique, I mean it's not unique in the way you interpret it. You were given the way to interpret it before it was given. The Bible is certainly unique in other extremely important ways. What other book do we have that is come to us by inspiration? God overseeing, superintending the work of human authors to give us His book in human language. Inspiration is unique. And because its source is God, then the Bible is also unique in that it is inerrant. It is without error. God cannot lie. So if the Bible is from God, there are no errors in it. It is fully authoritative. Likewise, because it's from God. If it's God's Word, then what it affirms is true and incumbent and binding upon all who read it. And it has unity. 
And that in itself is miraculous because you have 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period. You couldn't get five people today in a room to agree on something. And yet here the Bible can be harmonized in its message, is unified, does not contradict. And when you have a clear passage in the Bible that God has given us by placing it in context and using those God-given rules of interpretation, when you have a clear passage like that, and then you have another passage that you're having trouble with that is less clear, you always interpret, because of this unity, the unclear in light of those that are clear. We can do all of that because the Bible's unique. It's unique in its inspiration, unique in its inerrancy, its authority, and its unity, not unique in its hermeneutic. In our Master Plan for Life class, we have a section on this. And we have a section on it in our other core class that we ask everyone to take, how to get the most out of your Bible. And that's because it's that important. And once you recognize that God gave the rules of interpretation without writing a book about the rules of interpretation, He gave the book without writing a book on interpretation. And once you recognize that, then you can apply the rules He gave without having to choose a method. You don't have to choose a covenantal method. You don't have to choose a progressive covenantal method. You don't have to choose a progressive dispensational method. You don't have to choose a dispensational method. You don't choose a method and then come to the Bible. You come to the Bible you apply the rules that God gave to it, and then you allow that to develop your understanding. You don't need to adopt, and this is a, a, a more recent version, a typological interpretation, typology, but the list is longer. One of the passages is that, that is used to suggest that we go back and we reread the Old Testament to find Christ there in more places than we at first thought is in Luke chapter 24. Luke has 24 chapters, so this is the final chapter of Luke. This is at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has completed the work that He came to do. He has died on the cross. He is, he is raised. He is going to soon ascend back to the Father. And you remember that there the resurrected Jesus joins two men in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus who were lamenting the recent events in the city of Jerusalem. They had hoped that Jesus was the promised one, the prophet mighty in word and deed, verse 19 of Luke 24 says, who was going to redeem Israel, verse 21 says in that chapter. And these two ideas of a prophet and a redeemer were rooted in the Old Testament teaching of the one who would come, the Messiah, teaching with which these men were clearly familiar. But Jesus rebuked them for their foolishness and slowness of heart to, quote, believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You understand, and the reason you understand is because I gave you a book that you can understand, and you didn't have to read a book on how to understand. 
But your problem is you're slow of heart to believe all that's in the book. And so, Jesus, the, the passage tells us from Luke 24, beginning with Moses, and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. Jesus was showing them from the Old Testament that they should have expected that the Messiah would come, that he would be rejected and killed, and rise again to glory. Their disappointment stemmed from partial belief, from not believing all that the prophets have have spoken. Now Luke does not tell us exactly what Jesus did when he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Or when he appealed to the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms which must be fulfilled, Jesus said in that chapter. When he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There's no list of passages or, or texts that Jesus expounded on. Nor is there any revelation of the methodology or the the hermeneutic that he used. The text of Luke 24 provides at least two key ideas that should shape our conclusion regarding what Christ was saying in that important passage. The first is the identification of the Old Testament in that, that passage. It's Moses, all the prophets, all the scriptures. You all see that? These are stock New Testament terms for either recognized sections of the Old Testament or the Old Testament as a whole. They most likely do not refer to every single verse or even every single pericope, to use the fancy term, just a story within the story. And so Luke's point is not necessarily that Jesus is found in every text or that every text is even about Jesus, however true that might be. Luke's point is rather that suffering and a glorified Messiah is found in every section of the Old Testament. Jesus was not calling these men to rely on an obscure passage or on a particular way of interpreting, a particular hermeneutic. If they missed one era or one epoch of revelation, that would not have caused one to miss the message because it was there in each section of Scripture, in Moses, the law, in the section called the prophets, and in the third section of the Old Testament called the writings. And the second key idea to notice is that Jesus explains, quote, the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. And all things that are written about me, it says later in that passage. By remembering Jesus' point that these men and others should have expected the Messiah to die first and then rise, we can understand that Jesus is using the Old Testament teaching about the Messiah to show how He is the fulfillment, hear this now, of those passages. He's the fulfillment of those particular passages. The correction Jesus is giving here ties what they already knew and believed, that He was going to be the prophet and redeemer to what they had failed to believe, suffering before glory. So when Jesus explains that all, the, that all the Scriptures say about Him, He's saying that all that the Scriptures say about the Messiah, prophet, redeemer, suffering, death, resurrection, glory, all of that's about Him, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And this answers their error very directly. They believe that part of what the Old Testament said was about, that it said about the Messiah was about Jesus. They did not believe all of what the Old Testament said about the Messiah was about Jesus. So in other words, Jesus is, is not saying all the Old Testament is about me. Jesus is saying all the Old Testament that's about the Messiah is about me. I am the Messiah. He was confirming their initial instincts that he was the promised one. In light of this, whatever might be true about how one should preach then or teach or read the Old Testament, it's putting too much weight on Luke 24 to, insert, to assert that every single passage is about Christ. Jesus was not addressing that point. Now, in Psalm 22... We have a psalm that is both about King David and about Jesus in the future. I'd like to take some time to show that, and then we will probably continue, have to continue next week. But we have in Psalm 22 a psalm about both King David and about Jesus in the future. There is no psalm that is more frequently quoted in the New Testament than this one. That is why I chose this one as one of the psalms that we would cover in this, this series. And it's quoted in Matthew chapter 27 at the crucifixion, where we're told from the sixth hour, noon, until the ninth hour, that would be three o'clock, and that's because the Jewish day starts at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour is noon, ninth hour is three o'clock. Darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, as Jesus had hung on the cross for those three hours, he cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' words are a, a mixture of Aramaic and, and Hebrew. And therein, that God-forsaken moment. As the Son of God who came to earth to die because of no fault of His own, death is imminent, and He with His Scripture-saturated mind remembers David went through travails as well and cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have heard theologians, there are songs, otherwise good songs that have uh, lyrics in them that suggest, and I've heard preachers say, that in that moment there was a separation between God the Father and God the Son who had been in relationship forever throughout eternity and now they are separated. I, I would just say to you that's impossible. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit can, ne can never be separated. However, Jesus in His humanity is indeed being rejected by God the Father, bearing the sin of all the world, being forsaken in that sense, but of course ultimately accepted as seen in His resurrection from the dead as God the Father approved of the totality of the obedient life of Jesus, including His obedience to go to the cross and pay the price for our sin. 
Psalm 69 is very similar in its wording to Psalm 22. And in Psalm 69, it says this, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And here's what John 19 says about Jesus on the cross. So that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked it, a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' Jesus' lips. Now notice it says, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Now when you, when you go back and read Psalm 69, or you go back and you, you read that, it's not obvious that that would be a direct correspondence, and in fact, it's probably not. Because fulfill doesn't, most of the time, 90% of the time, does not mean a one-to-one correspondence. But rather an analogy a correspondence of, there are a number of ways that the correspondence is made. And then if you look at Psalm 22 and verse 17, Psalm 22 and verse 17, because this is the section of Psalm 22 that begins to look to something that is beyond David and in David's day. I can count all my bones People stare and gloat over me. And here's what the New Testament says. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. He goes on to say the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. There's real irony in all of this. Because in fact, if Jesus were to come down, then that would make it impossible for him to save others. The very reason he's there is to save others. And when they say he's the king of Israel, indeed he is the king of Israel. And Jesus genuinely does trust in God, and he trusts that God, in fact, is going to save him through resurrection, which we know he did. Psalm 22 and verse 18. They divide my garments among them, they cast lots for my clothing. And here's what Matthew 27 says in the New Testament. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And John chapter 19 says, this happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. And so here in Psalm number 22, you have a number of statements that move beyond the immediate life of King David to the life of the ultimate king who will come through the line of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a correspondence in the New Testament between, yes, the life of David, but he is also a prophet, as we'll be reminded in a bit, who can predict, and I believe in Psalm 22 in these sections did predict some of these elements of the life of of Jesus. 
They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. Quoted in Matthew 27, John 19. And if you look at verse 22, it says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. That's quoted in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. The one who makes men holy, Jesus, those who are made holy, us, we're of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, and here it is, the quotation, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And then in verse 31, very last verse, they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. When it says there, he has done it, the Hebrew there has a relationship to Jesus' final words on the cross that we read in John 19, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. God has done it. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his, his spirit. Now, all of that is given to us in a psalm of David. A psalm of David that, yes, is about the life of David, but then David moves beyond his own life to the life of the one to come. Now, how can David do that? I just want to spend just a few minutes, because we only have a few minutes, to remind you of how that can happen, and then we will continue it next week. But do you all remember a few weeks ago as we started this series in the book of Psalms and I said one of the reasons that we don't glean all that we should out of the book of Psalms is because we fail to see the intentional structure with which God has put these 150 together and that they're divided into five separate books. We are right now in book number one that goes through Psalm number 41. And they are like a musical cantata with five movements, movements that ends in a crescendo of praise in the, in the fifth and final book. But all of that is introduced in the first two psalms, psalm number, psalms number one and two. Psalm number one talks about the man who delights in the law of God, counsels against walking with those who are ungodly. And so it sets us up for the need for one who believes in the truth of God and delights in God's Word, as we saw last week in Psalm 19. But also, now Psalm number 2 warns us that all of this is going to be done in the midst of people who oppose godliness and God's people. And so in the very first verse of Psalm number 2, it asks famously, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Now against whom, I'm reminding you, are they conspiring and plotting? And I ask again, because on the one hand, that was written by David about a thousand years before Jesus came, and yet Psalm 2 is given to us in the New Testament, quoted uh, this way for us, and it's applied to Jesus in the New Testament rather than David. Psalm 2 is quoted in Acts chapter 4, for example. You, sovereign Lord, spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your ser servant, our father David, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed one. And the next verse applies that quote from our psalm 
to Jesus, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, how can it be both? How can it be the Psalms about David and Jesus at the same time? How can it be both in other of what are called messianic psalms, like Psalm number 22 is, psalms that speak of things going on, yes, in the life of David, but also point to a later time and another king who we now know to be Jesus? Here's how. David understood when he wrote that, that what was happening to him was part of a much larger drama that was about much more than him. He knew that there would be one coming after him in his line, one of his descendants who would be the ultimate ruler so that what took place in David's life was pointing to what would take place in the one we know as Jesus' life. The covenant that God made with David said this, The Lord Himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I'll establish His kingdom. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David had a son, Solomon. How'd that work out? And then Solomon had sons. His son Rehoboam split the kingdom. The kings of Israel, as you see them throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles, you see their activities. They're almost entirely wicked. Everybody fails. David failed. Solomon failed. Rehoboam failed. All the rest of them failed. All of them, you could say, are types. If you're into typology. All of them are types of failure. (laughs) If you want them to be types, that's what they're types of. Failure, one after another. And if you want to use the language of anti-type, okay, then Jesus is the success and the lone success, but thanks be to God. First part of your Bible indeed points to Jesus. You understand it the way you understand reading a book. I recommend reading from left to right. And then you expect one who's going to come to fulfill what did not happen through all of the rest, all the prophets, all the priests, all of the kings. They all failed, and now comes our blessed Lord Jesus. Bible is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read the Bible as it's intended to be read, it will point you in its entirety to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him on the cross and then ultimately Him enthroned and then ultimately God's people being allowed graciously to reign with Him. Now, we gave you an outline when you came in. I have no idea why we did that. (laughs) But we'll look at it next week. Let's bow together.
Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us. Thank you for giving us your book. Lord God, when I reach for a book in order to understand, help me to reach for the book. Lord, your people do not need a system. You gave us the system that is older than all others, literally all older than all others, because you gave it. You've given us the ability to understand what you say. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for speaking to us in your word. And thank you for clearly showing us who is central to what it is you are doing in your world. Thank you for letting us play a part in that marvelous, eternal enterprise that is the Great Commission. So Lord, help us to be then a people who are ever people of the book, and ever people who are devoted to the crucified and come Lord and coming King. Lord, help us to be people who are zealous about seeing others bow before Him now, so that we will gratefully, voluntarily bow before Him then. Lord, all of these are gifts from You that we do not deserve, so we savor them. Help us to treat them with the care that they deserve, because they've come to us from Your hand. And may You be glorified thereby, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.